We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. What a Produced masterful performance at Sheffield United, leaving us with only one possible conclusion. We are better than the worst team in the league. This is the Arsenal Vision Post-Match Podcast. My name is Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. Look, I don't care how doomy you want to be, how gloomy you want to be, you people with your agendas, your negativity. Get rid of it. Because we are undisputably, indeniably, indisputably, undeniably also better than the worst team in the league. No matter what your negative opinions might be. And we are here to discuss that. What a fun game. <clears throat> you know what? I think having fun watching Arsenal is a good thing. And I had it. I hope you did too. Um, we will not have Paul here to run it through the Crapatron, but I think we can presume uh, that a Crapatron evaluation is baked into our analysis, and we may get into that. Uh, and here to get into it with me is Tim. You can find him on Twitter at Stuberto. Hello, Tim. Hello there. And Clive. You can find him on Twitter at Clive PFC. Hello, Clive. Hello, hello. Hello, indeed. Um, I do want to say thank you to everyone for joining us. I hope you're doing well. I hope you had a great weekend. Uh, big week ahead for Arsenal with uh, work left to do against Slavia Prague. But today is a day for analyzing a nice, comfortable, fun, enjoyable win. And one that should be, I think, exciting to dissect. Because not only are there some interesting performances baked into it, there were some interesting technical innovations rolled out. And I think a lot of them may be related to trying to resolve the issue of what to do without Kieran Tierney. So we will get into all of that today, uh, maybe along with a little speculation about Aubameyang, because I don't see how you can avoid discussing it at least a little bit. But just real quick, Tim, just before we dive into this, Sheffield are, uh, Sheffield United are bottom of the table. Uh, I do remember beating Fulham at the beginning of the season, convincing us that we were all, uh, going to win the league, that Willian was the coup of the summer. 
Um, these games can be tricky. Do you have an approach for, I mean, look, watching it, just have fun for goodness sake, it's football. But do you have an approach for analyzing this where you're able to distinguish between the conclusions and the takeaways that are relevant and carry relevance going forward and the ones that maybe uh, you dispense with as sort of related more specifically to the opposition? So on this occasion, because we did quite a lot of new things that I don't think we've, well, maybe we tried a little bit against Slavia Prague and you referred to it there, like how we get around not having Kieran Tierney, for example. Mm. I, I think what you do is you classify that as this may be worth a look again. Um, and that, that that's, I I think that that would be, if I was doing my, my headline again for the, for the uh, instant reaction pod, that's what it might be. Like some of this is worth a look again. Um, so you, you can't like if we'd have just gone and played um, the way we have for the last three months against Sheffield United and won three nil. I, I don't think there'd be a lot that you could take from that other than we're better than Sheffield United, which we knew before the game anyway. Um, but I, I think there is some interesting stuff that's gone on here that, that makes me think, OK, that that's maybe worth a look. And we probably are coming to the stage, if not already, where we can. So, you know, I've I've been against the idea of you know, like completely rotating the team for Premier League games are much more in favour of a bit of gentle rotation. But we can, without necessarily admitting it and waving the white flag and telling everyone we don't care about the Premier League results anymore, the, the Premier League games are actually like quite a good testing ground maybe for next season. And so if um, what we saw against Sheffield United, which we'll discuss, um, you know, it... it it's potentially it's a good way for for us to say okay well we're playing Fulham next weekend maybe we can try it again then we're playing Newcastle I think we're playing um, who else we've got Everton um, Crystal Palace as well like th- these are all games where I think with not an awful lot riding on them where we can have a little look at some of this and we can you know we can see if perhaps we found. Uh, not necessarily the dominant way of playing, but just just another way of playing. And um, I, I think I think that would be a really positive development because I've said it till I'm blue in the face. I think even if the attack is a bit unbalanced, I think there is pretty much every attribute you'd want from an attack is in that Arsenal attack, is in the options we have. It doesn't <clears throat> exist perfectly in every player, but... Um, I think there's a lot of of, um, of grounds to kind of experiment and change things. So I thought that was a, a pleasing first step. And so I would divorce the quality of Sheffield United um, just by saying, okay, that's one piece of small evidence. Let's let's see if the evidence begins to stack up. I think that's perfect, and I think that's a perfect introduction to where I think we should start the conversation, specifically um, how we att- approach this game, Clive. And I don't think this is one where you talk about the lineup so much as you talk about where those players were deployed. Now, I think if you just put a camera in my home watching me watch this game, there's a small chance that you could have me committed because sitting on a couch saying, oh, three, three, four, one, three, 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 four, three, oh, four, one, four. Like, you're just calling out numbers. My, my wife's looking at me. She's like, what, what are you saying? I think as fans, we sometimes get really caught up having to identify what the formation is. Oh, it's a 3-3-3-1. It's a 4-3-3. It's a 4-1-4-1. And like, I don't believe that coaches remotely get as tied into that. They have zones that they want the players to operate and roles that they want them to take. But if I squint, I see a future 4-3-3 type setup here to cut against 
what I was just talking about, where Thomas Party can really patrol the center of midfield and have two eights that are split and occupy some of those half spaces and wide spaces, but can drop back to him. And that's what Saka and Ceballos were doing. And I think it maximizes some of the talents and qualities we have in the squad, and we can get to that. It also allowed him to kind of keep his left back back because he didn't have one and let his right back go forward a little more with Chambers. But I'm curious, what roles in this setup really excited you, interested you, um, surprised you? Oh, this game's going to be whatever I say. It's, it's gonna, it's gonna actually bring some disagreement because I think we all look at games with our own emphasis, mm. and so you've 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 gone straight in on eights, which is your want. You normally you normally go tens, but you've gone eights. A bit defensive for you. Tens for like, now, eights in the mean? future. That's where it goes. That's what we're doing. <laughs> right. So, and the first thing I look at is okay. Let's have a look at the back door, and so we really defended in my opinion, with a back four diamond. By the way, I'm going to clip that audio and I'll use it against you if we ever fall out. First thing I do is look at the back door. Go for it. We we defended with a back four diamond, right? So we had Shaka, um, Mary, and um, Holding in like a little V, and we had Party ahead. So if we'd have gone in there and with a three, with a with a back three, you'd have gone mad. You found this quite exciting. But really, when we had the ball, we were back three. We were back three, and Chambers tucked in to make it a four if there's any pressure. Right? So, and we had party in front, and then we almost had like a, a six rotating. I'm not going to overcomplicate it. And we all know that we build up in triangles and diamonds in wide areas, and we overload one side on occasion to make it a diamond, and we triangle on the other side, and we get out that way, and we switch play. So that's what we all sort of know that generally. Right? But this is not new per se. Some of the nuance may be new. But I always remember the first time I sort of noticed this sort of shape and and, and really sort of focused on it was in the oh Tim, I need your help here, mate. Was it the twenty seventeen mm-hmm. FA Cup final? When we had a we had a back three, Shaka played in the yeah. in the party role in front of the you know the back four diamond. Shaka played in front, Ramsey shot off. Yeah. And Shaka was the kaleidoscope in the middle of the, mm-hmm. he was the guy in the middle and basically everything else moved around him. Yeah, it's and Ozil was like over towards the right, but not playing on the right, exactly. if that makes sense. Yeah. And everyone moved, and everyone rolled in, and we almost filled in the midfield, in behind Chelsea's midfield. They know what to do. We spun them to death, right? And so, in my mind, it's quite similar. Okay, and we know the players are different, and the roles are different, but again, we had a back four diamond, and, and mobility and movement ahead. Some people starting high, some people dropping in, some people going in behind. And so it's interesting. We all find this quite exciting. Oh, 4 3 3 and all the rest of it. Oh, look at this. We've got Shaka playing here. Is he doing the cancello? Is he doing this? But actually, we just played the back three. We had the ball mostly. We played the back three. And we were quite flexible with how we positioned people. And and I, and I, this is when we were here. You know, this is why football's so great, right? We were here just a few days ago. Our trust in the manager was weakening. Uh, I was wondering about the project, and we all agreed he's a good coach. We worry about the man management side of things. But on these days, we must remember he's a very good coach. He's a very good coach. He fixed that problem brilliantly. He really did. And, you know, it's, although there were some similarities to what Wenger did in 2017, there was a lot of things there that I thought were, were excellent, and um, particularly how Tobias managed to make it work, particularly how Party did what Shaka did in a slightly different way with a bit more layers on it. And watching Saka play that sort of 
10 Odegaard rolled slightly to the right, knowing he can do it easy and how he just sort of triggered other players to play well. Mm. Yeah, I love it. I absolutely love it when you see something different. Um, and then it just allows you to almost watch. It's almost like getting a new, a new serving at dinner, right? A new, a new course comes in. Oh, this is nice. And it's like, he just does that. And football never used to be like this. It was far more regimented and you knew what you did. You turned players in and out, replaced them, similar attributes, and you watched something similar. The marked difference between game one, just each game now, tactically, is just brilliant. So I really enjoyed that. Yeah, yeah, it, it was really fun in trying to figure it out. You know, it's funny because after the Prague game, my big takeaway was it doesn't have to be calculus, Mikel. It can be Arteta. Uh, it can be Arteta. It can be arithmetic. Just keep it simple. And Mikel said, hey, Elliot, go F yourself. I'm going to make it double super secret calculus <laughs> and make it so difficult that you can't even figure out what the formation is, and we're going to win that way. And to be fair, that's exactly what he did. And Tim, I do think at the start of this game, as I was struggling to figure out what the plan was, I sort of felt the players were too. They were exchanging passes pretty well and we were connecting and moving, but we weren't really threatening yet. And I do think that when you make a change this radical to what you're trying to do, it's going to take the players time to figure it out. But once they did, the thing I really liked were those triangles on the edge of the box, in the half space, Mm -hmm. up the pitch. You know, Ceballos, Lacazette, Martinelli, or, uh, you know, a little bit of Saka, Chambers, and... Uh, Pepe with party sort of running the midfield, getting the ball into those attacking eights, into Saka, into Ceballos, and letting them create those triangles. And the, the first goal comes from a, a piece of play that I think it's easy to call Wenger ball because that was the kind of thing that we, at our best, always did. We took these really skillful technical players, parked them on the edge of the area, let them exchange passes in small spaces and move and create for each other. And it's the kind of thing I don't think we've done enough of. And this system... With the with the Ceballos and Saka rolls, whatever you want to call them, two eights or you know six point five seven nines, you know I've heard them called. I haven't. I'm kidding. Whatever you want to call them, <laughs> those connections and and that interconnectedness on the edge of the area and those small spaces that we created, it was really enjoyable to watch. And that first goal, Tim, that's that's vintage Arsenal. That's the kind of football we mm-hmm. love to watch. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, we we talked about not having Kieran Tierney and getting around that, but we didn't have Smith-Rowe or Odegaard either. Um, and those are two players who have become absolutely crucial um, to Arsenal because of the kind mm-hmm. of role that they play. And uh, so, uh, and, you know, you talked about um, how maybe it took a little while for it to take hold, which I think is quite natural. I think where it took hold quickly, the, like the first thing I really realised was the the interchanging between Saka and Pepe. Yeah. which I, I I thought we exposed Sheffield United down that side quite a few times. And uh, and that made some sense because Sheffield United, um, they're, they're probably, well, their two biggest problems this season that have led to their underperformance. A, they lost a really, really good goalkeeper and replaced him with a, an average one um, in Dean Henderson to Aaron Ramsdale. But their biggest problem, they lost uh, a centre-half called Jack O'Connell, who usually plays as the left-sided centre-half. And I mean, if you cast your minds back to last season, everyone probably remember people talking about Sheffield United's overlapping centre halves. That was all down to Jack O'Connell. Um, well, mostly down to Jack O'Connell. And the other thing he had, a bit like uh, Van Dyke, is he had that really big raking diagonal with his left foot from that position. And Sheffield United do not have a player that remotely does that. They've played Ampadu there, they've played Phil Jagielka there who are good defenders in their own right, but absolutely do not do the same job and, and things have kind of fallen apart for them. So that is where they're weakest. 
at the moment. That is a problem they have not been able to solve. And that, to me, is exactly where Arsenal were, were looking to hit Sheffield United. Um, and, and to be fair, we go down that side a lot now, particularly since Saka moved out there. But I, I thought Saka and Pepe got it quite quickly. Um, got it together quite quickly. I do think this is probably because, you know, we've we've speculated. I know I've speculated on seeing Saka at number 10. I think it's something I I, I wanted to see. Um, and now we've seen it, I think, for the first time. I, I'd certainly like to see it again. And Pepe as well. We've talked about maybe him even being a number 10 or a second number nine. So we know he can come into that central area. And we know that we prefer him in that, you know, in that half space much more than we do right out on the wing. So I think that really suited both of them um, because they're both effectively, they're both wide players that like to come inside. So they understand, they understood, I think, when to kind of um, cross over each other. So I think that took hold really quickly. I think the the triangle on the left, the Ceballos, Lacazette, uh, Martinelli one took a little bit longer, um, which I think is largely because Ceballos hasn't played there in probably over a year and Martinelli has barely played in a year um, and Lacazette's actually more used to coming off over to the right. But in the end, that left triangle we created, I think, was probably even more devastating than the one on the right, even though we did get a goal uh, from the right. Uh, with with albeit from a, a transition, so I, I I think you're right. I think it did take a little while, but I think we hit that right side quite well, our right side rather quite well in the early stages, and I think that was especially impressive, given that we didn't have David Luiz, who we'd usually associate with dropping that ball over the top. I think Holding did that quite well, um, and Chambers we probably wouldn't um, you know look upon as the marauding uh, fullback. But when you look at the average position charts, he, you know, he's much more pushed up than Jacker, as Clive said, look more like a back three. And, and so, I, yeah, I, I think it, it probably did take a while. But in the end, it, it took hold, I guess, because Sheffield United are bad and they never they never like that first 20 minutes. It took us to settle. I mean, the 20, 25 minutes it took us to settle against West Ham. We were three nil down and that was never going to happen in this particular game. So, uh, you know, it is a little bit down to the quality of the opponent that we had that time to, to hit our stripe, hit our straps rather. But um, yeah, I, I think that that right side, I, I think they got it pretty quickly. Yeah, I think the biggest difference, right, between the way Odegaard does this and what he did with the Ceballos and Saka pairing, I mean, if you... Touch maps are not always great, and Paul has pointed this out, because they're only where you touched it, not where you were standing, not where you ran into. But they do show where you got the ball and got involved. And if you look at the Ceballos touch map from this game, and then you look at the Saka touch map from this game, it's like someone put a mirror in the middle of the pitch, for the most part, and mirrored what they did. Um, You know, Saka a little more involved a little deeper in the box, right around the box. And Ceballos maybe just three, four, five yards further back. But the difference with Odegaard, who patrols sort of that whole area and has the freedom to drift left, drift right, and try to create from anywhere in the attacking third, Saka was the right eight and Ceballos was the left eight in this game, in my opinion, in that, you know, he was, Ceballos was charged with providing a little cover on the left, sure, but trying to find the runs from Martinelli, trying to connect with Lacazette, who drifted over to his side a bit. And Saka was there to connect with, um, with Pepe, and, and and it really worked, and I thought it brought the best out of a lot of them. Clive, there are more interesting performances than Ceballos's, and more important players. Martinelli will get to, Lacazette will get to. I do want to talk Ceballos just for a second, though, because and party we have to get to, of course, but Ceballos is an interesting one, because 
there are some players who I think have very specific um, limitations. And when those limitations are exposed, they can look like very bad players. A really interesting thing, though, is that Ceballos started as the 10 against Olympiacos in the home leg. It was kind of a dead rubber. And in the first half hour or so, he puts two of the cleanest, clearest chances you will see on a plate for players who blow it. He then proceeds to start dropping a little deeper. He gives the ball away. It leads to them getting their goal. We lose the game. It's, it's, it's not a good performance from him. I'm not saying it is. But I think when he gets further up the pitch and the spaces get smaller and he can deliver with one touch or get around one man and give it where the risk reward is more in his favor, I think it works. And when you see him in bigger spaces, further back in the pitch where he has to balance the the risk of giving the ball away there and be able to find the right passer in, in 10, 15 yards of space instead of maybe three to five yards, I don't know if that suits him as much. So... I'm not trying to like rehabilitate Ceballos here and say, hey, he's a, he's a future number eight for us and we have to resign him. I'm just saying that I thought this was an interesting role where we could see a little bit more of, of what I think he he has as a player. So rather than asking you to retcon your opinion of him, nor am I trying to do that myself, do you think as a small space player, a little higher up the pitch, Ceballos's limitations don't come through as much? Yeah, I think as a small space player, when we're in charge of the football then his weaknesses don't come out because his weaknesses are generally how he moves across the ground. Right? So when I watched this game, actually, the first thing that came to my mind was, okay, this is an interesting shape. How can we make it better? Right? I'm looking at Tobias. I'm thinking, hmm, Smith-Rowe could do that job. Smith-Rowe is more, more dynamic. You know, he's quicker. I couldn't agree more. more hard, yeah. mm-hmm. He's more hardworking. He's, he, he presses harder on them. And I think he recovers people, you know, people will move out of their holes, he can get back and help them out. And so actually that that doesn't that makes you feel quite excited, doesn't it? I mean Smith Rowe, will he develop into a Martinelli trade off? No, I personally I like a bit more forward or a bit more of a forward player there or a dribbler player there. But we've seen him be man of the match against Tottenham, so we know he can do it. Will he develop backward into that role? Left hand side of midfield tucked in, receiving the ball, the whole pitch ahead of him following his pass, one touch, right foot shots and that little left half space like against Tottenham. I mean, this is really exciting. When he, if he develops into that player, so Tobias, a player that can obviously play football. Let's not mess about. We know he can't run. We know he does stupid things when of his box. Let's not go over it again because we've seen it. He fancies himself and he does little flicks and tricks. When they work great, when they don't, oh my God, what are you doing? Right? So, um, mm. In, we, I've looked for stability in that role when we play a double pivot. I don't think he provides it. But when we play a back three, and he's he's the guy in front, and he can go looking for the ball, looking for those connections and reducing the space, he's very good, right? So certain games, his skill set suits, but it's not enough game scenarios for me to say, you'll do for me. Because in the end, if I'm analysing us, I'm going to take him on across the ground. I'm going to move him around until eventually he can't solve the problem because he just can't physically solve it. You know, so, so that's all it is. So when I look at players, I'm looking at projections, I'm looking at us, how we can improve. And I want to see less players in our team that literally have blinding gaps, you know what I mean, on certain mm-hmm. days, because that's why we're sitting ninth today. Yeah, you know that's that's the true reason. That's not a critique. It's just we got to recognize it and then move forward and get a better player to do the role, which he did really well on the day. Yeah, and look, I I think 
He also, I believe he led us in ball recoveries with nine. Um, so, you know, he, he does. Yeah, he did. Our, our next was Calum Chambers with six. He, he does the work. I think the limitations, as you said, when he has to run, when he has to cover ground. Um, I think when he has the bigger spaces where he has to play passes, I, I don't know if it's as good for him. But th- this role suited him. And I, I was sort of happy for him because I think he's, he's just had a bit of a nightmare. And that Olympiacos game, which started brightly for him, creating chances and showing a little of what he could do, ended so poorly for him. So... All in all, a good and interesting day for him. But but again, if you were going to run out this formation, if we can even recognize what it was, the role he was given is certainly a role you'd prefer going to uh, Smith Rowe if he's available, and even potentially Odegaard, although I think Odegaard would be more suited to the one that Saka had, um, probably pushing Saka into Pepe's role and so on and so forth. So, Tim, let's do this. Um, Martinelli... <laughs> He's an interesting player because he is a very low-touch, hard-running, high-energy, wants-to-score-goals kind of player on that left side. You know, whatever criticism we want to have of Aubameyang, oh, he doesn't build the play, doesn't do this, doesn't do that. Martinelli doesn't do much of that either. He didn't have a ton of touches. He's, he's not a high-volume passer. But he's the energizer bunny, and he just runs and runs and runs, and he pushes defenses back, and he wants to score a goal more than anything in the world. He's a shot monster. And if there's one thing analytics has taught us, whether you like analytics or not— it's that the shot monsters wind up being the really good players. <clears throat> the players that want to shoot. He now has more shots on target this season than Willian. So, you know, and that's not even a shot at Willian. Shot, get it? It's just <laughs> a, a statement of what kind of player he is. He gets the goal for all that work. I can see why having him on the left wouldn't necessarily suit Arteta if what he wants is a player like Smith Rowe, who's tactical and technical and and close control and distribution and high high volume passing and high percentage passing. But the irony is when he, he's used Aubameyang on the left, and that is the last thing he is. So this this is an interesting conundrum for Arteta because a performance like this makes you want to see more of Martinelli. But, you know, in this system, it works. In our regular system, you're back to having a guy on the left who probably won't build play much. So, um, you know, obviously you can sort of uh, rave about Martinelli. I think he deserves it. But also discuss how you think he finds more playing time if he's not playing striker. Yeah, sure. Well, uh, well, the the kickers in your last couple of words there, mm-hmm. I was going to say, like, it's all building towards him becoming Eventually, striker. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Eventually, yeah, yeah, definitely. Because um, <laughs> that's that's where... It, it's interesting, right? Because we, we played Martinelli and Pepe um, on both flanks, both of whom you'd say are, you know, guys that take shots that make things happen, but are fairly profligate as well. Pepe's not low touch. Um, it's just, he, he takes a fair number of touches. It's just a lot of them aren't very good. Um, but, but some of them are really, really good. And so there, there is a sense of balance there, but uh, again, we talked about this a bit on the instant reaction pod, but it's about the totality of that front four. And the reason it worked against Sheffield United is because Lacazette and Ceballos were there, who are more your kind of, um, they might not burn a defence down with a with a defence splitting pass or take on a shot from 25 yards or anything like that. But um, they're, they're your structure guys. They will keep the ball. So they balance out perhaps someone like Martinelli who might not get the ball that much or when he does yeah he had four shots yesterday one goal which means three of those shots didn't do anything um so that there there is a sense of profligacy in that so it's kind of about the overall network and therefore i mean for me martinelli it's it's really about who else is playing there um it's at the moment his 
his opportunities at centre forward are going to be limited because we've got Aubameyang and Lacazette um, to play that role. At the moment, I, I think he probably is like the analogue for the Aubameyang role on the left. Absolutely. Um, I I still haven't. I, I'm still like. While I don't think Martinelli and Aubameyang have ever really played well together, and I think this is more evidence of that, by the way, this is another game where Martinelli scores where Aubameyang's not on the pitch. Mm-hmm. I think all of his Arsenal goals have come without Aubameyang on the pitch. Um, there might be one in there somewhere, but I, I'm pretty sure it's every goal he's scored for Arsenal has come without Aubameyang. But I, I don't think that that, that that's um, a situation that needs to exist in perpetuity. I think you could play both of them if you had two more kind of um, two more technical players alongside them. So really it's, it's, it's less about Martinelli himself and more about the other positions. I I think the thing that's, that's kind of really unfortunate for Arsenal is, is that the, the real, the real structure guy is Willian and he's crap. Hmm. (laughs) Yeah. um, It's, it's kind of, what we've done essentially is we've sold Iwobi, which which I think was the right decision for the money that was on offer, and we've Re- replaced, replaced him with, him with the worst Iwobi. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a, yeah, no good exa- Iwobi. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> like, it, like I think Iwobi would be much, much better. Like Iwobi could have done like Sabios's job yesterday, or you know, or or the kind of job that we're told that Willian does, that kind of holding the structure thing. Like I do think Iwobi can do that. Uh, and but he can probably he's probably got a little bit more to him than than Willian who you know yeah who's who's just not really doing it at the moment and has stopped doing that that push and run stuff that he was doing at Chelsea and and I still think that we've miscast um, the player a bit I still think Arteta's miscast him and so that's the kind of unfortunate thing because we need a player like that in the front four and really what what we're hoping is that Smithrow and Erdegaard um, become those players and and that's that's certainly the direction that the wind is blowing but with with Martinelli I I think he does deserve more chances um again that's not to say he should start absolutely every single game but I definitely think coming off the bench I think that it will be interesting to see what happens, assuming he does have any sort of future as a striker um, with Balogun potentially signing a new contract. You'd have to think that Lacazette and Nketiah are going to go in the summer and therefore we could potentially have a Bamiang, Martinelli and Balogun. But that's two completely untested guys that you're you're entrusting quite a lot to as backup centre forward. So who, if anyone, do Arsenal sign? So I, I think a lot of it will will shake out in the summer. Really, and I do think as well. Like I've, I've always, as much as I don't think we've seen quite as much as Marti- of Martinelli as I'd have liked, I've been calm about it because um, I do think. I sometimes I do get vibes that he's not quite an Arteta player. However, he has signed a new contract while Arteta has been our manager, so I don't, I don't think it's one of these. Um, I get, I get more of those vibes with Saliba, for example, possibly because Arteta didn't sign him. Whereas with Martinelli, the contract is down, and that's come under Arteta's charge. I don't think decisions take place over Arteta's head. So he knew the player he had from last season. Like Martinelli hasn't changed, so he there must be a degree of belief in him. And the one bit of Arteta history um, that we actually have in terms of his coaching is we're told that he did all this great work with the likes of Leroy Sane and Raheem Sterling. And, and Raheem Sterling is probably a good uh, kind of good 
allegory almost mm. for, for Martinelli, that kind of that wide forward who had played a bit of centre forward. And there there were a lot of um, there was a lot of suggestion early in Sterling's career that he might go centre forward and he's played as a false nine before. So, I you know, I, I guess I've been calm about it to this point. I do think that Martinelli would perhaps have um I, I'd be fine with him being impact sub at the moment, but with the way the season is shaping out, I'd like to see him get more Premier League men, minutes before the end of the season. And, you know, maybe if it's in this structure or the other structure with more, you know, players like Smith Rowe, Nerdgaard, um, see if we can get him and Aubameyang playing together because we're invested in both of them and we can't continue to have a scenario where they can't play together. I think that does have to be worked out, and it can be. So again, I, I think we can use the last few Premier League games as almost like a bit of a laboratory to do some experimentation here. Mm. I I think that, you know, is not a position you want to be in, but, but I, I agree with you, right? I mean, you, you don't want to be in a position where you can be in a carefree, use your league games to figure stuff out situation. No, but that's uh, but, what we did here, yeah. I think. And, uh, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. And, and we should. You're right. I, I guess I'm just laughing because it's like, it's perfect. It helps us plan for next season because this one is over. <laughs> you yeah, know, but, yeah. But yeah, yeah no, it's, it's absolutely the way to do it. And Clive, I think, um, you know, you can certainly talk about Martinelli if you want. I, I would say that this is where at some point, if you have a finished article kind of team, if your team is firing on all cylinders, then you can say, stylistically, Martinelli right now doesn't give me what I need, so I'm going to go with someone else. I think when your team is really struggling, and you've got a guy who has four shots, one goal, one key pass, and can run like the Energizer Bunny, is a huge shot monster. Like, you just can't afford to leave Matt. You have to find a place for him. You know, you look at Willian against Slavia Prague, whether you like what he did or didn't like what he did, no shots from open play, no key passes. You know, all right, great. He's connecting. He's the guy who does this, who does... I mean, four shots, one goal, one key pass. Like, that. you you... At some point, you have to get the guys on that do the stuff that lead to the goals because the goals, as it turns out, win you uh, football games. I am reliably informed. So I, <clears throat> I think unless, you know, when we have all our players at our disposal, Smith Rowe and Odegaard and Saka and Pepe and Martinelli and Aubameyang and Lacazette, sure, it's much tougher. Absent that situation, if you've got to choose between maybe the extra control you feel you get with Willian and the just extra quality and end product with Martinelli, I don't think it's close. Um, so you want to have a final word on that, and then we can yep. we can get to what everybody has been all over Twitter asking for, which is uh, your Thomas Party assist reaction. But we can get that momentarily. You want to finish on on Martinelli? Yeah. So obviously, the reason why we say he gives us control because he doesn't give us any legs, so we think he must give us something. He must give us control. Then you look at his passing numbers; he doesn't give us control. So he just uh a one-touch, simple touch inside player now. That's what he is at 32. Mm. I think he needs to play in the interior, not the exterior. Simple as that. So, um, And that's where he came on yesterday, and he was fine. Again, another great game. <laughs> just doing what he does. Just being available and moving the ball on. So, um, And eventually he'll do something really flashy. Collecting his check, that's fine. <laughs> he does that really well. I'm yeah, proud of him. He just gets, he gets on the pitch, moves the ball, gets into areas sometimes, good at dead balls. He is what he is. So I, I don't want to go over it again because he'll, he'll probably put in top corner soon and we'll love him. So that's just the way football goes. So on Martelli, I, just me, let me just de-stress you a little bit on him. Um, I tend not to to worry about players that have got lots of skills, right? So I look at him and I think, okay, what, what can you do? You're, you're, you're very energetic, very fit. 
right? So your whole way you play the game seems to exude itself to your teammates and your teammates seems to spark off it. That's a great thing to have. Got a great way to transmit his ability. He can shoot with left foot and right foot. He can cross with left foot and right foot. Banging shots, top corners. He's not afraid to take them, right? He can run long in behind. He can carry 30, 40 yards. We've seen that. He can drop in and work back. He can press off the front. But when you've got a player like that, you haven't really got a problem. What you got to work on is probably the shot he took past the near post in the first half on his left foot when he's got four people in the line on the six-yard box. That'll be in his analysis video today. I promise you that because that can't happen, right? And so he must make sure you shoot across the goal because we need to score from that. And that's his development, making that decision, make it absolutely stick on. So I don't worry. He can be a, he can be a false nine. He can play on the, I think he's, he's going to be a nine-ish or 11. But it just doesn't matter. I just look at these players and I look at, Look at City a lot as well. You look at them and think, okay, their forward players can do a lot of things. Ferran Torres, I think that's a great shout from Tim on Sterling. Very much like that. Can be untidy. Can be an absolute game breaker. If you watch England, Sterling's always the one that breaks open the game and Harry Kane scores the goal. Even if Harry Kane's brilliant, he's always Sterling that runs in behind. He's the one that cuts you first. He's always got the first cut. I think Martin's got a bit of that something about him. I'm on a pitch. I'm going to make something happen. And I don't really worry where he plays, as long as he's up there. And I think we've got to work on his position. Get him up there. Keep him up there. Don't come back too much because you're, you're really good and they're scared of you. But they're not scared of you when you're tackling left-back position like he was against um, uh, Slavia, actually, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. Oh, was it Slavia? Was he in left-back position? Yeah, he was, wasn't he? Where there was a bit of a deflection there and they, they got the ball in off the corner. So... I know it's a game state. Keep high. You're really dangerous. And as you build a reputation, people start to follow you. It's going to be quite interesting because not only is his movements good, his secondary movement is, is superb. And it's just going to be such fun watching him develop into a forward player. And it's so good he can do anything across that front line and give us a lot of what we like. I know that my views on football can sometimes verge on the simplistic, but I think, Clive, like there is a moment where you can look at it from the perspective of the opposition and say, who do they want to play against? And I can't imagine, you know, if you see Willian on that pitch, what an easy night you feel you're in for. All right, I just kind of stay close to him. He's not going to really hurt me. He's not going to do anything devastating. Martinelli's the kind of guy where I feel like the defender would just want to grab him by the shoulders and be like, can you just stop for one minute? Just stop for a minute, please. Because he he won't. He does not stop. Uh, as uh, a famous artist once said, we won't stop because we can't stop. Um, <laughs> but you know, it, it is the case that I, I think that kind of approach can also help your teammates because you know, he's going to go and then he's going to go again and then he's going to go again and I can find him in behind. And if I go, he's going to be up there with me. I, I just, players like that, I think can pull the whole team up the pitch with them. So yeah. I, I, I think there's a star there. Same, same way with Saka, your eye gets drawn to him. You can't help but notice him and he's a special talent party. I got to say this. Clive, one of the things that football fans love to talk about, not just fans, coaches, analysts, is form. We love to talk about form. This player's in form. This player's out of form. This is a game that's really, really good to point out to say maybe form isn't a thing. Maybe form is just how we describe whether someone played well in their last game or not. Because Thomas Party had his worst game for Arsenal against Slavia Prague. And 
was handed the entire midfield against Sheffield United and controlled it, dominated it, and had one of the great two-touch drive and assist plays we've seen this season. Uh, I think our only assist from central midfield this season, to be fair. So now he's in form. The same could be said of Lacazette. But we touched on this a little bit in the instant reaction pod, and I'm starting to become fascinated about what kind of player Thomas Party is. And when he's in that double pivot and he's got Shaka there and sometimes defers to him, I don't know how well that works for him. But as we saw against United, where he had a lot of responsibility, and against West Ham for the last hour when he kind of patrolled the midfield alone in this game where he was given the central midfield role by himself, he loves those big spaces, doesn't he? Where he can look up, play vertically, carry the ball up the pitch. It really suits him, and I, I just thought he was sensational in this game. Yeah, I think when we he, he had a terrible game last week, and our, we tend to look at the, the the ball leaving his boots, you know, he's passing, and we judge him on that. And I looked at that game, and you know, we critiqued him, and I thought he missed Odegaard. You know, I've still got a West Ham game in my head, and I thought he missed that player to sort of get the ball off him and then progress it. And there wasn't really that player there. There wasn't really as many runners as he normally would like. And so I looked at him. You know, in this game, it was, it was great, obviously. But I asked myself the question, why did you come to Arsenal? Well, apart from, like, doubling your wages, why did you come to Arsenal? Right? So, and, I, and I felt that at Atletico, he was a little bit restricted. He played as a right double pivot and he had a Pacific role. And he wasn't allowed to come out of that role. And I know he plays number 10 for, for Ghana. And I, I think he's come to Arsenal, really, to, to play. I think he. I think he wants to play. Really wants to play football. I think he wants to run a team, and he's got the. He's more like a deep ten, really. That's what he is, and he might look like a Fabinho, but he, I've said it before. He just maps to a Tiago a lot more. He wants to get on the ball. He wants to get us playing. He wants to get us going through people, around people. He wants to get on it, turn away, and just go through. And I love the. The reliance we had on him in this game, and similar to Shaka in the 2017 Cup final, to get your overloads, you have to overburden one player. And we overburden him. And we say to him, you control this area here. We're going to give you the ball. We're under pressure. We know you're going to get targeted, but we trust your technique to get us out. And once you overburden him and two or three come to him and he gets out, we got our superiorities elsewhere. And it's very high risk. And when you look at the passing maps we've all looked at today and every position maps, you just see this bloke in the middle there, number 18, and no, no one around him. But it worked, didn't it? It mm. absolutely worked. And again, looking forward, you say to yourself, oh, this is interesting. How can we get people around him? What type of people do we need for different games? When do we need a, a more of a solid player around him? When do we need somebody more progressive? How, what's he going to be like with different centre-halves that are quicker, that he can trust a little bit more? Does he squeeze us up a little bit more? Does that bring players like a Sabias, that style of player, because we squeeze up to the halfway line, a small space player? Does that bring that type of player into our minds again? And this is the, this is the fun, right? Having a player that can fix lots of problems. I like this player because of what he does responsibility-wise and influence-wise. There's high risk with that because when he gets pushed off the ball, People are going to go, well, he's 45 million quid. I expected more from him. But I think looking at this game, it's a real indication of our reliance on him and why we bought him, I think. I think because Jack has done that role, but we all know he hasn't got the technical ability to get out of as many things as what party does. 
He's, I thought Shaka's passing was tremendous, by the way, yesterday. But Party's passing is just a little bit more layered and creative from that position. And so, yeah, a, a very good player. Um, that that turn and pass was, it was right up there, wasn't it? And the sort of thing that you could do that against a really good side and it still works. You know what I mean? And that's the thing. Some things we did yesterday are not transferable because the opposition is quite poor. But that was so quick, so crisp. It freezes them, doesn't it, though? I mean, that's the problem, right? When you have a guy who can do that and then burst past, yeah. what, I mean, what, uh, what does a defender do? Look? If they step up, they're dead. If they drop off and he keeps running it, I mean, it puts it puts the defense to a decision. And that's what good players do. They put defenses to a decision. You know what I mean? You step to me, I'm going to kill you. You drop off, I'm going to keep coming at you until you you can't cover the space anymore. I, I don't know. I mean, I just feel like he he can put a defender to a position to a decision. And you know, you said, Clive, I love what you said. In order to really exploit teams, you have to burden certain players. You know, the good teams, the really good teams put the burden on the really talented players. And when they solve the problem, they make it easier for everybody else. Party almost got caught and almost conceded a goal in this game because of it. But the rest of the time, the burden was on him and he he handled it masterful, masterfully. And that goal is is the quintessential example of it. Up that goal. I mean, let's be honest here. We, we've been killing Lacazette for a week. But where did he get that run from? I mean, he knows the player, doesn't he? He knows he's going to suit his teeth him on the half turn. He's off. I, th- I trust him to be him. Bang, straight through. This is what happens when you play with good players. You know they're going to do their thing. Then you do your thing early. And suddenly Lacazette looked a lot quicker than he did <laughs> on Thursday night. And he put that ball away absolutely mm. perfectly. So, um, strange game football. Yeah, <laughs> strange game. Tim, when when you were just talking there about like um you know burdening players and stuff like that, a, a lot of um what you were talking about there, Clive, was it kind of reminded me of Fernandinho at City, in terms of quite often he is a one man central midfield, and and that's kind of what we did here. You know, we almost had like Sabios doing David Silva things and Saka doing De Bruyne things, you know, more or less, and Party just left in the middle. And and I watched City against Leeds on Saturday, and it seems like a really weird game to cite because they lost it. But the way City were just camped on, like... John Stones was camped oh. like 25, 30 yards from goal. And it was actually Fernandinho who they they were kind of leaving back. And of course, like City got caught on it because they were so they were so far forward and so yeah. dominant that it, it, this was that like one in 30 games where City, it's not going to go in for them. They rested some players. They got caught on the break. But a lot of what you were describing there with Thomas Partey, it, it reminded me a lot of um, of what I think we've seen from Fernandinho at City. And that is one player that Guardiola is really struggling to replace. He's replaced Silva with Foden. He's replaced Aguero with not having a striker at all. He's finally got round company with Diaz. Like he's replaced a lot of players, but I think Fernandinho is going to be the hardest one for him to replace. And and I think I saw in party, you know, it, it was a bit Fernandinho with a pass um, kind of stuff. Yeah, and uh, yeah, Crapatron analysis fully in place, right? Because the one thing that I thought Sheffield United got badly wrong is they didn't target him. I mean, there was that one time, but like, if they bracket him, if they put two guys on him, I think they could have short-circuited a lot of what we were trying to do. I mean, they, we would have gone out wide, maybe we had the overloads and been fine, but he he didn't face the kind of relentless pressure that I think a good team might have put on him if 
he was alone in midfield like that against another side. Now, maybe we wouldn't have put him alone in midfield, you know, against a team that's going to put three or four in that space. So it's it's all moves and counter moves at some level. Paul, uh, Clive, I, you want to finish on come, that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, because the reason why this is where the Shaka thing was genius, right? Because if they are sitting on pie, you just go to Shaka. Do you know what I mean? And he distributes on that side. Holding distributes from his side. Having people who can pass it at the back just changes everything. Then you think, well, you know what? We, then you have to go go press our defenders. You press our defenders, guess who's free? The guy in the middle, number 18. Mm. Right? So this is the thing. Having players, this one I want a possession, right centre back. Got some bloke in France, by the way, who can actually kick the football. Don't you? <laughs> you, want, you want a right back who can switch play and play tucked in midfield. Right, so, and when you're looking at your eights, what you need to be looking at, because we now, we've now seen the future, we've seen the promised land. So when you're looking at your eights, what you're looking for is the ability to refill. So when we do get pressed off the ball, that ability to sprint back in, Man City style, and take the possession early. So you're filling up the bucket, I call it, filling it back up. It's, you've emptied it out, it's a big white space, and now we've lost it. Can you fill that central zone? Your ability to sprint in, we come back to what we talked about Sabias early on. Do you see that's do you see the weakness there? It's not going to happen against good opposition. You put say I'm just I'm using Smith Rowe as an example, but you can imagine Smith Rowe or Saka coming back in really quickly. Mm-hmm. You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. So when you're looking for an upgrade, a midfielder who can progress, but that psychology to switch from attack to defense, bang, recover really quickly. And that allows you to take the the overburden risk your central player. Yeah, and just a lot of roles that suit a lot of players. I mean, I've always thought Granite Shack is a player who, the more of the pitch he can see in front of him, the better he is. The more of the pitch that's behind him that he can't see, the worse he is. Um, you know, that, that when he has more space in front of him, he's fine. He completed 74, 78 passes in this game. Nice and easy. 70, 74 passes, 90, 98% clip. Pablo Marie, 93, 94%. Rob Holding, 93, 94%. I mean, they just, high volume, high competence. The, the passes were played... Really well. Um, you know, I, I think may, maybe the solution is actually play Granite Shack and goal, right, Tim? <laughs> but then he can really see the, the game in front of him. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Wonder where you got that from. Point taken. Well, for, right from the chat, <laughs> where I get all my good material. Um, all right, Tim, well, let's let's talk um, Lacazette here for a minute. So, mm-hmm. you know, again, if, if Thomas Party's an example that form doesn't exist, Lacazette is too. It's a really good game. Uh, the way he sets up the first goal, he sees it all happening. You can almost see that he's he's got all the moves mapped out already. And he plays the interior pass that starts it, makes the run, gets it back, finishes it coolly. The the final goal, the the one where he gets in behind, it's like Thursday never happened. And this is what's so crazy mm-hmm. about talking about form is because he's sent in, it's beautiful, he's in on goal, he takes it early, he takes it with confidence. Now you could say, well, that's the difference between playing you know, scoring the third goal in a meaningless league game against the bottom side and being put through with a tie, you know, a quarterfinal of a European tie in the line. I, I, I take that point, but this is a really good Lacazette performance. He and Aubameyang do different things. Before we get into the Aubameyang situation, because I think we got to spend a few minutes pulling that apart and, and parsing some of the issues there, but just in terms of what Lacazette does in this game, I mean, how do you explain the fact that a player can have such a rough night, then come back three days later and look totally transformed? 
Yeah, sure. I, I wouldn't quite put it that form doesn't exist, although I, I realise you're not being like completely that binary no, of course um, <laughs> about it. Like uh, like XG is, I think, a good illustration of form, particularly for a striker. Um, but I, I guess uh, the phrase I would use um, is a headline from a great piece that Rory Smith wrote a couple of months ago, which is there's no such thing as a bad player. And his, his I guess, thesis, uh, actually brilliantly illustrated by Jesse Lingard at the moment, is that there aren't bad players, just bad fits. Um, you know, systems maybe they can't play in or don't relish or managers that they don't see eye to eye with or who play, you know, tactical systems that don't play to their strengths. Basically, every player looks good when you play to their strengths. And again, fantastic illustration of this leads under Bielsa um, that he's largely got the same squad that was in the championship. He's added a couple of good players to it. But, you know, this is a mid-table championship team and he's just put in a structure that they've all bought into that plays to all their strengths. Taken someone like Calvin Phillips, who was a number eight and said, no, no, you're not a number eight in my system. I'm going to put you in front of the defence. And Calvin Phillips was like, what? I've never played there before. Fast forward a year, Calvin Phillips is playing for England in that position. And and so that, that talent was always there. But it was about putting a framework around him and around the team that allowed the flour the, the individuals to flourish. And and I think that's that's just what happened with Lacazette here. We played a front four that played to his strengths. So in Pepe and Martinelli, you've got two guys who love getting in behind, really aggressive, take shots, etc., etc. Do all that stuff that perhaps um, when I say we, I'm not going to use the royal we because I know um, Arsenal fans are are really split on this. So um, I, when I say we, I'm going to I'm going to say like maybe you and I, Elliot, the the kind of things we get frustrated with with Lacazette for not doing. Well, all of a sudden, there's two wingers who do that all day long. Um, you know, just look at just look at the second goal. How does it come about? Because Pepe makes a beeline into the area, takes a shot, and then Martinelli follows it up because those two players, that is what they do. Whereas Lacazette, you know, drops deep, links play, etc., etc. And so having two guys in that like that in the forward line who arrive in the box first, because Lacazette. I don't think Lacazette has ever been the guy that likes to arrive in the box first, or if he does, he likes someone with him. Look at the the players I think he's had really good partnerships with. I think he had a good partnership with Ozil because he liked coming short and bumping off those one-touch passes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think he had a great partnership with Ramsey because Ramsey made those support runs because Lacazette is not a Bamiyang in the box. He will not if you leave him on his own in the box, he is not the guy who's going to sneak off and, and find space. He will pretty much always just stand near the penalty spot. And so then it's a case of other people moving around him to make that more viable. Whereas Aubameyang, you can kind of leave him in the box on his own and he will find like a nook or a cranny somewhere. And so what we had in this game was just look at the players he was close to. Ceballos, brilliant. That's a player who likes one touch football, flicks, tricks, everything else, five-a-side football that Lacazette really likes to play. And then they had Martinelli. And where was Martinelli? Just ahead of both of them, just running in behind saying, yep, you you guys play your tiki-taka, play one-twos all day. I'll be over here when um, when you get the ball in the penalty area. And, and that was all it was about, I think, was balance. Whereas against Slavia Prague, <laughs> who, who was playing on the left? Willian. Well, Willian, you know, Willian has qualities, 
but he's not going to get in the bot. Like he's not mm. going to help Lacazette with the things that perhaps he doesn't do as well. And and I guess um, I think for I mean for for our patrons, I'd point people to the. Th- the thread um, on the Instant Reaction podcast. I think uh, Blavich had a, a really nice kind of thought in there about perhaps, and I, I think I'm guilty of this as well, perhaps we've become too binary in this Aubameyang-Lacazette debate. So it becomes this ridiculous, like Aubameyang can't link play. And he can, and he showed that on Thursday when he set up the Pepe goal. Mm. He's probably not quite as good at it as Lacazette, but he can. And then in, with Lacazette, we get the, well, he can link play, but he can't get in the area and score goals. And he can. He scored plenty of goals this season. He got in the box and scored two goals in this game. So we, we've perhaps, um, we slash I have become too binary in looking to make this Aubameyang-Lacazette thing a culture war, when really what's happening is it just depends on the balance of the players around them. And this, the balance of this um, system with these players just really suited Lacazette in a way it didn't on Thursday. Yeah, I I mean, I want to get into that binary just a bit, um, despite the fact that I'm not sure that it makes sense for there to be a binary, but I do want to get into it. But I I think, Tim, like the thing that's interesting is if I want to be completely honest, like Lacazette did the things against Slavia Prague that I want a good striker to do, get in a position to score a couple of goals with big chances. He just didn't take them. Mm Mm-hmm. And I have to try to be intellectually consistent as hard as it can be sometimes when you don't want to be because it doesn't suit what you want the outcome to be. But if I'm going to say, hey, as long as Aubameyang's getting into good chances to score goals, keep playing him, I kind of have to say as long as Lacazette is getting into good chances to score goals, keep playing him. The problem is, I mean, look, it is not Arteta's fault, Aubameyang's fault, or Lacazette's fault that we spent 50 Mm -hmm. million pounds on a striker in the summer and four months later spent 60 million pounds on another striker. And that has been a problem pretty much since the moment we did it. It's a legacy problem. It is a legacy problem. And the irony is, it is never as simple as Lacazette's bad and Aubameyang's good or vice versa. They are both very, very good players. I happen to think that one is a potentially elite player and the other is just very good. And that tiny little distance between those two is the reason why I would play the elite one. And you can say, well, go with the one in form. Well, we just said, here's the problem with saying go with the one in form. Would you have considered Lacazette in form based on Thursday? Is he in form oh. now? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. that's the problem. So say you're Arteta and you want to pick Thursday's team. You say, well, just pick who's in form. Well, he wasn't in form three days ago, and he turns up and, and he's in. he scores two great goals in this game. Form isn't a reason to pick something. you got to pick it based on do they fit the system and do you trust the player's talent. For me, that would be Aubameyang. For me, maybe it's not Aubameyang. Maybe it's Lacazette. I think the the tiebreaker is the guy who's probably going to go in the summer versus the guy who gave 300,000 pounds a week to be your star striker for three seasons. That's the mm-hmm. tiebreaker for me. Because as a club, yep. if your resources are consistently being poured into players that you wind up not favoring, you're not going to go very far as a club. But, you know, that's a much bigger issue. We, we don't have to solve that right now. I mean, we will solve it. Trust me. I'm here in the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast, we will solve that problem, but not today. Uh, Clive, the, the thing that can get overlooked in this is just that Lacazette's having a pretty good season and doing a lot of good stuff for the team. And it is a shame that they don't seem to be fantastically suited to playing together. They've had some good games playing together, particularly in a back three. But, yeah, I don't, I don't love it. I don't think any of us love it. So here's Lacazette saying, pick me on Thursday. I think his his link-up play was good. His two goals are well taken and, and very different goals, one running in behind, one on the edge of the box. The thing that I have trouble with in terms of picking Lacazette for Thursday is I still think about Slavia Prague and I think, 
once we see those 40 yards of green grass behind those center backs, will I wish Aubameyang was on the pitch? So does this Lacazette performance give you pause for thought? And more importantly, does Arteta have the problem of potentially over-indexing this performance against this bad Sheffield United team who also plays very, very differently and distinctly from from Slavia Prague. Now, that's not giving Arteta enough credit. Uh, he's a very smart guy. He's seen how Slavia Prague plays up close now. I don't think he will make the same mistake twice, but different challenge, different player, or different challenge, same player? If I look at Slavia a little bit more, I think if you're thinking what they're going to try to do, I'm, it's going to be interesting what they do, if they're going to push on to us or not. If they do then and we don't want them to push on to us because we are trying to play a one-man center midfield. We bear our speed up front in the wide areas because they're going to be thinking about that all the time. And we already showed in the other leg that we can we can run faster than them. They're not very quick in the back there. I know they had some injuries, but they're not very quick there. So I think, like I said, I read today that only Gundogan has scored more goals than him in the Premier League since uh, Boxing Day. And we sometimes maybe overlook that. In the end, it's about goals. In my mind's eye, I want Yang to be our centre-forward because I just feel more comfortable with it. And it's about the balance, what we're doing behind. But there are days for a Lacazette. And there are days when Yang plays, he doesn't want anyone to step on his toe. right? And there are days when, you have, there are days when, he, when you can't find him, but the ball's in net three times. right? So... But you're a manager, you're trying to manage risk, right? And you come to the situation on on Thursday where you're playing a tough team. And I want to make sure my central zones are looked after. I want to make sure I've got presence there. And so you can see yourself picking Lacazette. You can see yourself picking one of the tens. And if I'm the manager, I'm making sure I've got speed on both sides. And you can take your pick, right? Pepe Martelli Aubameyang. I think Aubameyang will play. And uh, I think Saka will obviously play, whether he plays in behind, depending on injury, or out on the right. And just create a similar balance, but maybe lift the certainty of Aubameyang off the left-hand side a little bit more than Marseille did really, really well. That's what i do, and I'd probably... I would look at a left-back again. You know, I had this little... I had this little inkling for Gabriel to play left-back. You know, and... Because um, if you roll around to a back three, I think he's, he's suited into it. You know, so I've got, and I just think that makes a lot of sense. I think for some reason, Mary seems to make holding heart rate go down, and holding looks like a footballer when Mary's next to him. When he's not, he looks like a scared rabbit. So, no coincidence. You wouldn't play, play the two lefties together, right? Well, I would. Yeah, I'd have it similar to what, what I just basically I would put Shaka where Tobias is. I would put Gabriel where Shaka played. And I would do that. When you want Shaq that high up the pitch? You think? You, I mean, look, I think Shaq is a better player than um, Ceballos, but I'm not sure in that zone he's a better player than Ceballos. Yeah, well, it's not a problem. Just play it slightly differently. Get behind it and spin it up to your fast forwards. Mm. Not a problem. You know, don't forget we won't be that high up the pitch against a better side. The game won't be. Well, the and same, also they right? force the they force the game back a little because they play such a high yeah. line and they press. So the game the game the game is about unlocking them from the cent- from the center of the pitch, not. Yeah. Picking the lock on the edge of their final third. Exactly. And we need the ability to spring. We need the ability to get in. Right? So it was a bit of a... We played, not say long balls, but medium-length balls into the right channel. And when I felt more hope, when I saw them running backwards, they're going to come onto us. They're going to put us on a bit of pressure. They're at home. We've got the ability to, to, to move it, get into our feet, turn around, build, build short or build long. But we must have that ability to go. You know, so... 
I don't fancy Cedric left back for this game. I, I, re- I really don't. Um, I want to make sure I can get the ball to my killer. If I'm going to play, if we're going to play a Bamiyang out there, we better make sure that the guy behind him can pass it to him. Mm. Well, and that guy is Shaka. Let's That's say this. If he doesn't want to pick Aubameyang, and we'll get into the Oba thing in a minute, because there's one more thing we got to talk about, unfortunately. If he doesn't want to pick Oba and Timmy picks Lacazette, so be it. I mean, it's hard to say that Aubameyang's mm-hmm. having a storming season and Lacazette's worse. I mean, right now there's very little between them, whatever my personal opinion is. I think mm-hmm. where we would agree is that he has to have two runners, not one. That picking Lacazette yeah. and having Willian... Is 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 a non-starter. That, that can't be the solution. So it's got to be mm-hmm. Pepe and Saka, or it's got to be Martinelli and Saka, or Pepe and Martinelli if Saka's not fit somehow. Whatever way he goes, if especially if he goes for Lacazette, then he has to have the extra runner. Yeah, absolutely, one hundred percent. And and it will be interesting as well to see what happens if um, Smithrow and or Erdegaard are, are fit as well, because you'd you'd have to think well, definitely one of them would start, maybe even both of them. Um, but it, it does feel like if you play Smithrow and Erdegaard, that's a Bamiyang up front um, rather than Lacazette, which, which again, yeah, which again makes sense because, you know, the other guy's going to be Saka. But again, we don't know if he's going to be fit yet. And if he's not, you'd think that probably Pepe will play, who's, you know, a slightly different kind of player. Because I guess one of the reasons that Saka is uh, approaching, um, you know, to use US parlance MVP status for Arsenal is because we're talking about like a lot of attackers who either, broadly speaking, are either like the runners and the finishers or the kind of the link and the creators. Like Saka can broadly do both. He hasn't been doing the finishing that well lately, but he gets the positions and so it will come. Um, and I think it will come before the end of the season, by the way. I wouldn't mind betting that he'll have, if he's fit, I wouldn't mind betting he'll have a little burst of goal scoring. So Saka's really, really crucial because however you configure this two plus two, he he can broadly fit into either either category. I would prefer to consider him as more of a, like, um, I guess more of the creator build up and then any goal he scores is a bonus. Mm. Um rather than let's say having like Smithrow, Erdegaard, Lacazette and Saka. Like I wouldn't want to put it all on Saka to be um to be one of the goal scorers. So it it it's it's really interesting. And what what's really interesting is <laughs> there are there's a potential real big upside ahead of Thursday, which is that if you're Slavia Prague manager, what what on earth are you preparing for Arsenal to do? Because we have all of these options, because we've played in a couple of different ways, that's a huge strength. It's a huge strength to be able to drop um, a couple of different, if not, you know, formations per se, a, a few different shapes, I'd, I'd, I'd rather call them. And and that's um that's potentially a really big strength, and it can enable you to go. Um, I think every team should have the ability to go a little bit horses for courses, i.e., just target one weakness in an opponent and play the players that that really um that really exploit that weakness. Mm. The flip side of that is that can be, and I think has been this season, um, Arteta's worst enemy <laughs> is choice. And I, too I much agree choice. with that to some extent. I absolutely <laughs> agree. Well, let, let me because let me ask you. How how bad do you think it like it is the wrong time of the season for us to not have a formation and a system and a lineup that we really know is our best? And Tim, if there's one thing that I really believed was key 
to the run we went on post-boxing day. It's this 4-2-3-1, Odegaard at the 10, Smith-Rowe at the left. We kind of had a feel for how it was supposed to play out. Oba through the middle, sack on the right. And now that's all been torn up due to injury, due to trying new things. So his head's got to be spinning a little bit right now. A little bit, yeah, a little bit. It does potentially make us less predictable because I do think that has become an, an issue for Arteta. Mm. I do think there are times, for example, when he went to the back three, it worked until it didn't. And then it went to four, two, three, one, which, I mean, I think it's far too simplistic to say it worked until it didn't. I don't think it's really stopped working. I think he just started to get the balance a little bit wrong in that front four. He lost the players he needed to use it to. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, I do think that there is... Um, yeah, I do. I do think that there is an element of that. Um, however, I, it's and and ultimately with the four two three one, like what what we did against Sheffield United was still kind of four two three one. It was just, it was just like some of the shapes around it were just slightly different. Mm. Um, and you know, this is like the you know the Juego de del Posicion uh, type thing isn't it where I'm glad you it, got to say it because really... I don't have the first idea how to pronounce it <laughs> <laughs> no, neither do I really um but but yeah so it, it's it's just more about you know you have like a shape in possession and out of possession and and things like that so it, it's interesting that there, there is there is scope for it to perhaps be just a nice little innovation that maybe helps get us over the line for the season um but there is also scope for <laughs> for Arteta to to really really lean into the the pep thing and go a bit galaxy brain in a big european game and mess it all up by overcomplicating so yeah it's 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 going to be tense isn't it seeing which one seeing which way we come out with yeah that is it is sometimes easier to have the choices removed from you where it simplifies your thinking. And, and I don't think there's any simple way for Arteta to solve the issue of a very imbalanced squad, which is not his fault, um, and some missing key players and how you compensate for that. I, I'm going to... Clive, unfortunately, you're going to have to talk about this with me. But before we do, I'm going to force Tim on the record here. That, that's not fair. I'm not going to do that to you, Tim. I was going to ask you a question that's not fair. Um, it, it's about Aubameyang and the flu. Clive, I remember there were times when we would get reports that Mesut Ozil had the flu or Mesut Ozil had a backache. And I'd tweet something, you know, just half-ass, like, oh, sure, or eye roll emoji or something. People get really mad. Well, why would the club say he does if he doesn't? You know, what, what do you, th- what do they gain by that? Oh, you think he's not sick? Like, what, you don't think he can get sick? Like, I'm sorry. I just think sometimes clubs have excuses for leaving players out. We're 10th, 11th. We're playing the bottom team. Resting Aubameyang for Thursday makes sense. But given how bad our season is going and how you don't want to disrespect your opposition, maybe you don't want to say this player is rested for the bigger game on Thursday. So you say he's got the flu. Or maybe there's genuinely a problem between the coach and the player. But we see this. This happens. Now, could Aubameyang somehow have gotten the flu? He could. You might be saying, well, Shaka had the flu the week before. Now, to be fair, they said Shaka was ill. They did not say he had the flu. But, you know, who knows what the case is. I also think that professional athletes very rarely actually miss games sick. Um, if you'd like, look up Michael Jordan flu game. They can play sick. Um, you may not want them around the team sick, but that's another story. So, Clive, there it is hard for me to believe that the Aubameyang situation at the club is perfect right now. There's too much smoke for there not to be some fire. I also don't think this has reached Ozil proportions. And there are some people that are already like, to hell with... Oba, he's done, he's dead to me, let's get rid of him, let's sell him this summer. I think it's way, way, way too soon to be leaning into that kind of thing. 
I think this is a guy who still wants to play football, who still plays great football. It's not that long ago he scored a hat trick against Leeds. He's put up good underlying metrics. He scored the winning goal against Benfica. This is a player who still has a lot to give us if we want to let him. That doesn't mean I think we should have given him the contract, but that's a dead issue altogether. So do you think that he was rested? Do you think that it's a problem between the player and the club? Do you think the truth is somewhere between the two? Maybe you can sort of pull this apart a little bit and and give us a, an idea of where you're looking, where you're coming from, and how you examine the situation. Mm, no, I don't like this. But what I would say there's is, no good um, answer. I I give you that. There is no there is no good answer. It depends how you view. I think it's a bit deeper than this, right? I think it, I think it depends how you view the treatment of star players. Like so. I I like a bit of basketball. I'm not an expert, but I'm I'm trying to learn a little bit about it. Not to, I think there's lots of similarities, by the way, between coaching and basketball and football and space and things like that. So there's a there's a Brooklyn Nets player, Kyrie Irving. He's a superstar player. He causes some issues. He's hard to manage. But he's a superstar player that does things. Some people say you can't treat a superstar player the same as your role players. Right? But eventually, his behaviours will affect the team and people are concerned and when the playoffs come will the team be connected and Kyrie in in, in Cleveland and Kyrie in um in Boston, there were there were issues there, right? And so people think looking at Bamyang and look back to Dortmund, they say, Oh, I remember when he left Dortmund he was he wasn't so good and all the things we heard, maybe it's true. Maybe it's true. But is it Arteta? He can't manage Gwen Doozy, he can't manage Terrera, he can't manage Ozil. Maybe it's Arteta's fault, his man management's crap. Um, he's good at coach, but he can't manage people. So we're just jumping around, mate. Just like I said, a week ago we watched <laughs> we watched driving Miss Daisy run through the centre centre of our, our defence, our centre forward, by the way, and got caught by somebody really slow, and he kicked the ball against crossbar, and he was done. A few days later, he's back. I tried to look at it and just say to myself, he's a class player, and that class will come to the surface again. It feels as though. Something is not quite right. I don't know what it is, and I don't know where the blame lies. And I don't really care, because in the end, the club has shown him a level of belief, and they've done it by giving him a, a nice contract, around 250 a week of a signing-on fee, and Instagram does to death in, in the in the last year, end of last year, tell us how exciting this was, how he wants to be a legend. I remember watching those videos. I remember how I felt when they came in. I remember how happy I was. And three, four months later, I'm not about to change my opinion on, on the player that's probably going through a, a rough time in some way or form. Right? So and I just don't want to speculate about it. I said something to you offline yesterday, didn't I, Elliot? I've done lots of coaching for many, many years, and what really struck me was the difference being around adults compared to youth coaching. Adults have real-life problems, real-life problems, and sometimes you have to say something to protect a player, you know, and it's, I can't tell you the difference. It's huge. I mean, of course, we're adults, right? We have problems. We're all adults. But adult footballers have problems, and it can affect their availability, much more so than young players who just want to play. They just want to play. They give anything to play. They don't have any problems. Just get me in the team. Right? So easy to coach. And there's, there's a problem there. Whether it's personal for Aubameyang, whether it's personal with the club, it's going to come out eventually. It just will. But my hope beyond hope is that 
some good things come out of his football boots on Thursday because that's what's really important. Mm-hmm. The club's invested in him and we really need him to try to lift his club back to the Champions League. That's all I care about. And if he can't do it, then fortunately we're developing options. You know, and, and that's what we need to focus on. When we haven't got an option, this is a crisis. Yeah. This is a crisis, but we have got options developing and hopefully Arteta picks them. I, I don't think the problems are anywhere near the severity that some people are speculating but I think there might be the beginnings of a problem. And this is where Mikel Arteta's managerial skills will be tested uh, because we can't have a 300,000-pound-per-week player who we probably can't sell become unusable again. You just can't have it. Not for the harmony in the squad, not for the, the resource allocation, not for anybody being willing to let you sign, get another player to sign a contract. You know what, Clive? You referenced basketball. I'll give you an analogy I think is perfect because I've been thinking about this for years. I think... Strikers in football are exactly the same as star wide receivers in the NFL. If you've ever watched the NFL, the wide receivers are all mental. They will scream at their quarterback if they don't get a pass. If they're open, they will run back to their quarterback and scream that they're open. They literally get in screaming fights with their quarterback on the sideline. All they want is the ball thrown their way, the ball in their hand, so they can go run down in the end zone, score touchdowns, and win games. All of them. They're all mental. All the star wide receivers are mental. And strikers, what do they want? They want to score goals. They want golden boots. They want to be handed the match ball. All of them. They're all a little bit mental. If NFL coaches bench their wide receiver every time they complained about not getting the ball or every time they complained about not scoring a touchdown or the ball not being thrown to them, there would be no wide receivers in the NFL. You just have to accept that they're mental. The New England Patriots are renowned for having a tough coach, a coach that you know can be hard on players, cut them loose at a, at a moment's notice. He signed a guy named Randy Moss, who by some people was considered to be one of the most mental, difficult to deal with wide receivers in all of football, but he was also the best. And he broke every record there in the season they had him and they won the Super Bowl. I know people hate comparison to American sports, but the point is you can't always just have a culture. Sometimes stars act differently and you have to give them some latitude to do that. And I'm not saying so much latitude they burn down the dressing room and tear down the club. And I'm not saying Obama hasn't done that. And I'm not saying that Arteta's overreacted. I'm just saying a little latitude, a little grace, make this relationship work. It's in everybody's best interest. We'll finish with this. I only have a couple more minutes. But Tim, before we go, it's easy to say this doesn't matter. Sheffield, they're the bottom team. Mm. Arsene Wenger famously talked about when you lose one, make sure it's not two. When you lose two, make sure it's not three because then it's broken cannons on the back pages of the newspaper and the questions are harder in the press conferences and the players are all agitated. A 3-0 win like this, going into a big Thursday, coming off a difficult run with some issues surrounding the club that were starting to get noisy. I'm not saying beating Sheffield United means we're great, but this win helps. This yep. this win calms it down. Yep. Yep, absolutely. It gives it a bit of serenity. I mean, I, I don't know how much like um, a Twitter timeline is like obviously like my... T- <laughs> Yeah, yeah, proxy. That's a good work. I, I was going to say because like my Twitter timeline obviously makes absolutely no difference to any of the players or the coach. But, you know, yeah, as, as a proxy, I don't know how much like what people are saying on Twitter is a proxy to, I guess, fairly close enough because in terms of what the players think and maybe what the players say, maybe more what they think in their own minds. But, you know, I, I'm not seeing so much of like the Abamyang conversation, for example, which before the game. Um, was raging and I know I, I contributed to that as well myself now no one's really talking about no, no one's really talking about whether he had the flu or not 
Um, mm -hmm. No one really cares because we won and the guy who played up front scored two goals. So no one cares anymore. And and so, you know, I imagine that for players that at least has like a little bit of a little bit of impact. But, you know, just for things like their confidence, et cetera, et cetera. It, it's it, it's exactly that quiet is the word it just it just gives everybody a little bit of peace going into what is an absolutely massive and and it has to be said defining game because if we don't get through this um you know it won't just be the days following that won't be peaceful mm -hmm. because whatever if we go out on thursday no one's going to care what we do against fulham on sunday um it's a conversation that will just go and go and so, um, yeah, it, 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 the aim is to make sure that obviously the aim is to go through. The aim is to make sure is, is really to make sure that that does not happen. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. All right. Well, I think we should leave it there. We'll have plenty to do before um, before Thursday. So we'll have some Patreon pods, which I hope you'll join us for. And if not, no big deal there either. Uh, we will have a live stream again before the Thursday game. And I hope you join us for that. Those have been fun. They're light. They're breezy. We do some fun stuff. And I think it's just a good way to all get prepped for the uh, sphincter clenching moments to come. And then uh, instant reaction after that and post-match on Friday. So I hope you have a wonderful week. Uh, enjoy the prelude to the big Thursday European football with the dumb Tuesday and Wednesday European football. Tim's on Twitter. Thanks, Tim. My pleasure as always. Clive's on Twitter. Clive PFC. Thanks, Clive. Thank you very much. My name is Alex Smith. You can buy me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. We love you so much. Thank you so much for being here. I hope uh, I hope you enjoyed that game. I hope you got a chance to just soak up some fun football. So, we love you, and I hope we will talk to you after Arsenal 10. Slavia Prague, Nil. No.